Amen. Thanks, Michael. It's, uh, we have one more Thursday, and then we take the Christmas break. We basically are going to go from here, and uh, we got next week, and then after that, we take off the rest of November, which is Thanksgiving. I, you know, I'd plan for us to meet, but I'm not planning to be here on Thanksgiving Day. So we'll take that off, and then we'll be off for the month of December. We'll fire back up January 9th, and it will be different material. I was already asked, hey, are we just repeating this again? No, our deal is is we think it's good for guys to get together, circle up around tables, open up God's Word, have a discussion. And so the cool part is, you know, there's no question there's some guy in your life that you've been either badgering to bring to Man Challenge You've been thinking, should I bring Demand Challenge? Well, we've, oh, we're kind of underway right now. I'm not sure if I ought to invite him now, especially next week. We're just like at the tail end. Is that going to work? So I know how it goes. I know how I work. And usually how I work is that I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't invite somebody. Now, what I would say is invite the guys that were sitting around your table or that aren't here today that you know. Give them, shoot them a text this week and go, you're lousy. What, where were you? But, uh, but on the 9th of January, when we fire back up, you know, make it a goal to invite a couple guys to come along with you. Not because it's important for us to fill this space. I'll do this if there's a half a dozen of us sitting around a table. It's not about the numbers. To me, it's about what we're talking about as men, the conversations we need to have as men, and the process of being with other men, particularly men in our similar stage season of life. I think this is just important stuff. The other piece of it is, is pray about this, think about this, is um, as we kind of started this up, we just started it up with a little skeleton crew of people who were serving, and uh, like this morning, Kevin, let's hear it for Kevin, who brought donuts. If you, uh, if you didn't get a donut, you should probably go get a donut, even while I'm talking, I will not be offended, but uh, if, you, if you have it in your heart to, you know, be part of the welcome team as guys are coming in just kind of high-fiving and welcoming guys in. Uh, if There's a couple different key roles. Email me. You can, In fact, you have your pen, you have your paper. I'm just bsearch at crossings.church. So just shoot me an email. If you're in and say, yeah, I'd like to be part of a little leadership team or service team, just shoot me an email, and I'll have coffee with you or lunch or something in the uh, month of December, and we'll kind of get it all sorted about what that might look like. Because um, this is, like I said, we started this off with a little skeletal crew, and uh, it'd be great to ad- advance this out. Well, today we're talking, Michael said, um, you know, we're talking about the mother wound. And this is one that's just a very tender wound for any guy. In fact, for many men, this is like a beginning of a conversation. For some of you, you may never have thought about the impact that mom had on you, anything other than positive. And for some of you, as you reflect back, you kind of go, mom wasn't perfect, but mom was, mom was pretty good. So you don't have any particular tension points there. And for some of you, it has just been below the surface your whole life, but you haven't had the courage, or maybe you've never had sort of the grid or the conversation space to even address that in mom's imperfections, she left an imprint on you that somehow has left you a little bit uh, disabled as you meander through your adult years. Some of you who are married have told you for years, look, your mom has issues, and it has been a tension point in your marriage. You have argued with your wife, and you can't understand why your wife isn't more gracious, kind, and loving towards that sweet woman who raised you. 
and you think your wife has the problem, it's not mom that has the problem, and the truth is all of you have the problem. If you're married, it's your wife and mom and you. All are engaged in some sort of problem. So as we dive in, I think one of the greatest stories in the scriptures, and just to be clear, this story in scripture isn't in there to instruct us on parenting or to talk about the mother wound. We're just going to see it in a story. It is the story of Rebecca and Isaac and their parenting style. We talked about Isaac a couple weeks ago, and I talked about the father wound. And we're going to dive a little bit more into the Rebecca end of the story. Now, I, there's a couple things I just want to say up front. It's not in your notes, but just for you to know. One is we shouldn't be too hard on Rebecca. She didn't have Dr. Phil and Oprah in the afternoon to learn parenting from in a secular worldview. She didn't have the scriptures to rely upon and to read and explore about what God has to say about parenting. She was so elementary in her faith. This is kind of a weird thought. We know more about God than Abraham did. We have more access because of the scriptures than Abraham had. Now, he had encounters with God, and we might go, that would have been neat. Yeah, but between the encounters with God, there was a whole lot of silence. There was a whole lot of faith living. And so it was with Isaac, and so it was with Rebecca. So I want us to be completely fair to this lady. She was a good lady, and she was doing the best she can. And the purpose of the story in the Old Testament is to show the advancement of God's covenant with his chosen people. That's why the story's there. So we shouldn't be confused. Having said all that, there are some stuff in this story that is of like uh, soap opera quality. And so it's in the 25th chapter of Genesis. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to find Genesis 25. If you have the electronic Bible, turn to Genesis 25. Don't check your email because God will know. All right. Starts in uh, verse 27. It says, the boys, that is Jacob and Esau, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. He's out there in his Cabela's camo in the deer blind every chance he has. And there's no government to tell him when hunting season is or isn't. It's always hunting season for Esau. Now, while Jacob, he was content to stay at home among the tents, reading Martha Stewart magazines and swapping recipes with the ladies. That's my addition. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. That was his man's man. That was his man cub. That was the boy when Esau came in. Isaac was like, come on in here, Esau. I love you. You know, he was the one. He grabbed Esau by the shoulders. And when Jacob, uh, you know, daintily came in, Isaac was like, hi, son. You know, Esau. Hi there. But Rebecca, she loved Jacob. And so Esau here, we have this picture. He's a man's man. He's a father's son. Isaac loved him. And maybe Rebecca wasn't so keen on the manliness. Maybe Esau was the guy because he's out there all the time who it didn't occur to him to bathe. Maybe he killed the deer and then immediately wore its skin, blood still attached. We don't know. We don't know if Esau was particularly gruff. Rebecca, we believe, loved Esau. She just happened to love Jacob more. And this is your first point. Mom played a favorite. Mom played a favorite. She she had a, a favorite in her family, and it was Jacob. She loved him. She identified with him. He hung around the tents, probably a shepherd. I joke about the Martha Seward thing. He probably was a shepherd. He was probably more agrarian. So he was available. 
So when Rebecca said, hey, could you open up the can of peaches? He could do that because Esau was out hunting. And so Rebecca identified more and more with Jacob. And if you explore the Jacob story, Jacob takes on some of the few characteristics we learn of Rebecca. Jacob has those characteristics all his life. He looks, we don't know a lot about Isaac, but we know a little bit about Rebecca. She was a sneaky lady as the story kind of unfolds. And guess what? Jacob's sneaky too. Rebecca wasn't the most honest person that we see in the book of Genesis. And guess what? Jacob has a little hard time with shading the truth. So Jacob takes on mom's characteristics. He identified with her or she identified with him. And some moms do this. This might be your mom's story. You might have had some, uh, a sibling, uh, or a brother, a sister, or both. And mom doted on one of them, and it wasn't you. And in this story, you have felt the pain of Esau. Maybe dad liked you. Maybe neither liked you as much as they liked your sister. Sometimes that happens. Or maybe mom, after you were born, found the umbilical cord in the medical waste bin, pulled it out, and reattached it. And so you've gone around your growing up years with a little bit of, a, of, a, of an attachment to mom of the umbilical cord variety. And some guys have this. Mom ends up kind of being the glue on them. Honey, sweetie, are you okay? Can I do anything for you? Can I get that taken care of for you? If she, if she could, she'd come over to your house now and make your bed for you. She would iron your clothes for you. And some grown men let her. That actually happens. And so mom played a favorite right here in the beginning of the story. Well, there's a second uh, thing that we see here. Mom, mom was at odds with her son's wives. Now, note the, um, note the, uh, you know, the, the noun of uh, possession there. Sons is in singular, not sons is in plural. In other words, she didn't like Esau's wives. Esau had two. At this point, Jacob has none. And it says, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite. The Hittites, by the way, were like a, they were like a power brokers up north. They were in modern-day Turkey, and they kind of made their way into modern-day Israel. But the Hittites were a powerful people, and so uh, maybe this was a remnant of that tribal group. But either way, he marries a Hittite woman. Uh, and also Basemath, which, by the way, of all the Bible names, that's one that needs to have a revival right there. If, if any of you younger guys have some girls coming in your life, consider Basemath. That one is a real good one. No takers? It's in the Bible. Okay. He also married Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. So two Hittite girls. And it says this, they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And, and maybe, maybe Esau married them because they annoyed his parents. He might have become that guy. You know, there are some guys like that. that they fall in love with the girl that annoys their parents. It's not even that they're in love with the girl. They're like, well, this will cause drama. And uh, it makes me think, there was an old country song when I was in college. Um, some of you guys might know this song, but it, uh, it, the lyric goes, I like my women just a little on the trashy side. Uh, when they uh, wear their clothes too tight and their hair is dyed, too much lipstick and too much rouge leaves me excited and feeling confused. I like my women a little on the trashy side. You know, some guys, you know, some guys were memorizing scripture in Bible college. I was memorizing lines to country songs. 
Yeah, so there it is. I picture Esau's I picture Esau's women like that. Now that might be entirely unfair. But what we do know is mom and dad didn't like them. And it could be that the women were terrific. They really might have been. Sometimes that happens. You know, there is a reason there's mother-in-law jokes. Because sometimes mom just doesn't like the woman that comes in and interferes with the relationship she was enjoying with her son. Because when a son gets married, he displaces the relationship mom had and he is devoted to his wife. In fact, if you're not, that's a problem if you're married. And so it could be that Rebecca didn't quite care for the displacement. This is why, like in a traditional marriage ceremony, in a traditional family, dad walks the bride down the aisle, his daughter, and he passes her off because she was devoted to him. She was the apple of his high. He, she was, he was the man of her life. And then in a traditional wedding, he passes her off, and then he backs away. He kisses her. He lifts the, he lifts the veil. He kisses her, and he passes her off. I have two daughters. I've already thought about this moment, and I hate the guys already. I, they're not even dating boys right now, but I hate them because the thought of, like, I love my girls. There's nothing I wouldn't do, and I also know men. So I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is not my favorite thought of passing them off. To the, but the idea is, is I'm no longer a special man in my daughter's life. That's it. In fact, one of my friends, she shared a story that when she was a newlywed, she and her, uh, she and her husband got in a fight, and she got so upset she got in the car and went home. She goes home, knocks on the door. She didn't have a key to her house anymore, knocks on the door, and her dad opens the door. He's like, what are you doing here? And she said, you know, Gene and I had a big fight, and I want to come home. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't your home anymore. Go home to your husband. You guys got to solve it. Figure it out. And he shut the door. That was some good, that was a good move. But all I can think of is I, I did the funeral for her father. I knew her father. Her father was a sweet Christian man. All I know is I bet when he shut the door, he went into a private place in his house and wept. I bet he did. That had to be brutally difficult, but that was the right call. This is, by the way, this is a real issue. If, again, I'm speaking to you married guys. If you're married and your wife says, look, your mom hates me, and you're going, no, no, you're wrong. My mom adores you. Your wife's right. That's how that works. If, if your wife senses there's a tension between her and your mother, then she is tuned in. Because men don't tune into this. This can happen. So just be aware of that. Again, I'm just speaking to you married guys. You guys who are single someday, if you're married, just know that if your wife says, your mom doesn't like me very much, the reason that she feels that way is because your mom doesn't like her very much. (laughs) And there is no question, mom was at odds with the son's wives, and that's not a good place to be. Mom once, once the son's made his decision and chosen his wife, mom's job at that point is to say, son, I'll pray for you. And then she has a little group of lady friends, little Bible study, coffee clutch, prayer circle. And to those ladies who have to be sworn to secrecy in a blood pack because it might get out, she says to those ladies, my son got married to the worst woman ever. I hate her so much. Help, help me love her. Help pray for me. That's what a mom ought to do. That's really what a mom ought to do. But anyhow, that is not what Rebecca does. Rebecca is at odds. And then it moves into a much more intense phase. Mom pitted siblings against each other. This is Genesis 27. And and this might be your family of origin story, where mom was always kind of, she was toting, 
your grades against your siblings or your siblings' grades against you or academic accomplishments and later in life it's uh, relationship accomplishments and children accomplishments. My grandmother, we found this out after this woman died, but my grandmother would say to my parents that my Aunt Lucia's two boys were just awesome, 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 and they hung the moon and everything was great. But apparently, and which made some tensions, my mom was very, that like burned in my mom. My, mom, my, my, my grandma would never talk nicely about us, but apparently we found out after she was dead, she did that to my Aunt Lucia and talked about our family all the time. What a treasured lady, right? God rest her soul. It says this in uh, Genesis, Isaac said, I am now an old man, and he's talking to Esau, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver, go go hunting, son, make me a meal before I die. By the way, as the story unfolds, it's years before the old man dies. So I don't know if Isaac really felt like his uh, doom was imminent. I picture Isaac kind of being a bit of a not terrific guy. And so he, he convinces Esau... Now, Rebecca was listening, so, so, so Isaac's like, I want to bless you. I want to give you the family blessing before I die, so go cook me a nice meal, and I'll give you a blessing, which, give the blessing. If you feel like you're about to croak, don't make your son go hunting, and then, just give him the blessing, and then so I blessed you. Now, go, go fix me a nice meal before I die. But again, this is insight window into, into Isaac. Now, Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to her son Esau. This is where it turned soap opera. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to Jacob, remember he hangs around the tents all the time, says to Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so I might give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, son, listen carefully and do what I tell you to do. Go to the flock, bring back two choice young goats so I can prepare tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. He'll think it's wild game. Then take it to your father to eat that he might give you the blessing before he dies. Now here's a part. I, know, I've, I have read this story over and over and over and over and over and over. I grew up in church. I'm very familiar with the story. Something struck me as I was reading it. It never even occurred to me. Why on earth did Rebecca insert herself into any of this? I mean, really, what's her motive? Her motive is simple. I mean, she likes Jacob more than Esau. But what a terrible thing to do. In a traditional culture, the eldest son is the one to receive the blessing. That's the traditional culture. It goes to Esau. Esau came out first. So Esau is supposed to get the blessing. And for whatever reason, Rebecca decides that she is going to circumvent a traditional process, deceive her husband, basically take away Esau's blessing and give it to the youngest son younger son now that's not a very nice thing to do but this is mom she is she is really doing something here by pitting the siblings against each other this is going to create a scar a ripple in the family life and some families have this some it might be your family where something was done and in this context where mom did something and it left a devastating impact on the family there was some ripple out things never were the same again And these boys may not have been great companions before, but the hatred just escalates. We know Jacob must have hated Esau, because why else would you do this to your brother? There's a lot of hatred here. And we also know that when Esau comes back, he is not going to be very happy. So here we have mom coaching her son Jacob to betray his father and his brother. And there's no sense that she's cognizant that there will be an outcome that's not good. Now, none 
None of this is God-honoring, by the way. God's plan was to move through his covenant through a family line. And Jacob was going to be the covenant recipient. But there is nothing in Scripture that says, in order, in order to move God's will along, lie, cheat, and steal to do it. In fact, don't. There's, there's ethical complexities about, okay, do I tell the truth if I'm hiding a, a, a fugitive away from an authoritarian government? That is complex, and that is a big old asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. 99.9999% of the time, you just tell the truth. There are very few times you, you don't tell the truth. If someone's life's in jeopardy, maybe you shade the truth. Maybe. But most of the time, vast majority of the time, you tell the truth. And here we have mom teaching her son how to be deceptive. Now that's pretty crazy. And moms sometimes do this. They create a complex situation of rivalry within family. Well, that's number three. Number four, mom attempts... Mom attempts to alleviate the consequences for her son. Now, this is interesting. Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, but, but my brother Esau is a hairy man. I have smooth skin, you know. I moisturize, and he's all rough. What if my father touches me? I'll appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Dad might. If he figures out I'm tricking him, he'll curse me. And this is fascinating. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. And get them and get the the livestock for me. Now this is this is interesting. It was just in the news yesterday where um, one of the families that bribed USC to get their kids in, into USC uh, there's a there was a pretty heavy consequence towards the individual and they were they were called the judge called him a thief and gave him the maximum sentence in prison and maximum fine and all kinds of stuff and and my first thought when this whole story broke is why would you bribe USC of all places that there's a whole level of crazy bribe to get your kid in Harvard Yale Ivy Leagues I get it family's been there for generations you're embarrassed because your kid smokes weed and has really bad grades by all means bribe the institution if you got the money to get in I just assume people did that anyhow I didn't even know it was illegal until the story but USC of all aim higher is all I've got to say about that choose better for your kid USC did any of you go to USC by the way now that I've used that joke, okay, whew, that's a relief, because that could have turned embarrassing in an unintentional way. Well, she is trying to take a consequence, and parents do this. I, I have a friend who's, um, who, who basically pampered her son all the way through his schooling years, so that she, when he turned in papers late, she would call the teacher and get extensions. She would coach him along. She would help him. She would go above and beyond the parenting responsibility of making sure the kid did the homework. She was always basically changing his diapers, even when he was out of diapers. Then delivers him to college, and he bombs out and moves home. Then goes back and bombs out and then moves home. I don't even know if the kid's in college right now. He had aspirations for a quite, I remember when he told us what he was going to do, I remember thinking in my heart of hearts, boy, that's going to be, that's going to take a lot of discipline, and this kid doesn't seem to have that kind of discipline. And currently, I think, uh, his discipline is rolling organic product that he grows as in his own basement, you know, if you catch my drift. It's a sad, sad story, but mom was always trying to alleviate the consequences. And if she would have his freshman year let him fail a couple papers, get bad grades, 
and struggle when he was 14 or 15, it may not be as tragic as it is when he's 21, 22. But some of the mother wound out there is mom was trying to alleviate the, the pain. She was, mom, the way to know that the mom does this is she blames everybody but her kid. I have a lot of friends. Ben back here is a school teacher. I've got a lot of friends that are school teachers, and I hear this from school teachers all the time, is that it, there was an era when the teacher called the parent and said, hey, your kid's being unruly. The kid would come in the next day sitting up straight wearing a tie, you know, like that was a day. Today, if a parent says, hey, your kid's falling behind, there's an accusation against the teacher that they're not doing their work properly, which is a shift culturally. But we, are, we have moved into blaming other people. A mom who blames everybody but asking her kid to take responsibility. This is a mom who is trying to alleviate the consequence for her son. Well, a fifth attribute we see here is that mom undermined her son. And I'm speaking of both of them here. It says, so she went and she, um, so uh, Jacob went and got the livestock and brought it to his mother and she started to prepare it. And then Rebecca says, took the best clothes of Esau. She's invading his closet now. She goes into his tent. Maybe she was in charge of the wash, but either way, she gets Esau's clothes, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son. She also covered his hands and smooth parts of his neck and his goatskin with goatskin. That is a hairy man. I always love that part. When I read that in the Bible, I'm like, when they say he's hairy, if you have to wear goatskin to emulate Esau, that is like Yeti kind of hairy. That is, that, that is Sasquatch kind of hairy. I just, I want to see a picture of that. I hope Esau's in heaven, and I hope he's just as hairy so I can see it. <laughs> then he handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and bread and made and said, hey, go on in. Now, she is totally ripping off Esau here. She is undermining Esau in a remarkable, alarming way. She's taken from him, but she's actually undermining Jacob too. She's taken away from Jacob something that belongs to him. She's, she's crippling this guy. She's encouraging him to do something that is very self-destructive. She's encouraging him to become a very dishonest kind of a person. And so in the process, she's teaching some values and virtues that aren't good. And this is something that one of the wounds mom can leave behind. Mom is always teaching. As men, we grew up probably much more around mom than dad because of the nurturing way of mom. Some of us grew up in traditional homes where mom was around the house, and some of us is just that that was what mom did. Dad went and did stuff even when he was home. My dad worked in the factory. When he was home, he was taking a nap or asleep. You know, like he went from, he got home, he cleaned up, he took a nap. I would go in and wake him up for dinner. We'd eat dinner. There'd be some conversation. Then he'd go to bed because he was on the 5 a.m. shift. And so my dad's a good guy, but he, mom was around all the time. I was always running errands with mom, being with mom. Mom's always teaching something, teaching, teaching her son something. And in this case, she teaches Esau and Jacob how to lie, cheat, and steal. For Esau, the lesson's learned in the negative, And for Jacob, it's learned through the positive reinforcement. But in the process, she has undermined her sons. And then mom finally lost her son. This is one of the sad parts of the story, even it gets sadder. As Genesis 27 says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because the blessing, it goes through, he gets the blessing, and so Esau decides, I want to kill Jacob. He's pretty upset about it, and he would. Uh, and so Rebecca, when she's told that Esau wants to kill uh, her, her uh, favorite son, she turns to Isaac and says, look, 
we got to get, she, she decides I got to get him out of here. And so she turns to Isaac in verse 47, 46. I'm disgusted with living here because of this, the Hittite women. In other words, I'm disgusted at Esau's women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, because again, the Hittites were occupying that land from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. And so she sends Jacob away with Isaac's blessing to go find himself a wife amongst her people group, which is hundreds of miles away. The story ends with Rebecca never sees Jacob again. Her favorite son, she sends away. And this is what happens. This is part of the outcome of the, of the mother wound is that either the son is always kowtowing to the mother or he, he pushes mom away in frustration. And the very thing that mom wants, she wants this sweet, intimate relationship with her baby boy. Even if her baby boy's 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, she wants that sweet relationship with her baby boy. Eventually, baby boy pushes mom away. And we see it here in this story. Esau ends up embittered and Jacob ends up enabled. Neither of those things are good. Esau becomes bitter towards his brother. And I'll bet you, we don't have it in there, but I'll bet you the relationship with mom went from bad to corroded after that. But Jacob ended up enabled. And when you look at the rest of Jacob's life, he looks a lot like his mom. And so the consequences for the mother wound, there's a couple different pieces to this. The, um, the first consequence is men, men become passive in relation to women. Male, they are males in biology only, but masculinity is far, far from them. C.S. Lewis, he wrote in, uh, in uh, one of his books in the Space Trilogy, he, he's talking to one of the characters who doesn't really know how she feels about men, and he says, you know, you're offended by masculinity in all of its strength, its bearded glory, that it bursts in and it scatters the sheep, that in its masculinity it has a toughness to it. He said, maleness doesn't offend anybody because that's just the biology of it. You could be male and not masculine. And that was written in 1948. That was ahead of its time. But um, either men become passive in relationship to women, males lack masculinity, they become soft, they won't offend anyone, they're always, they're always looking for some new woman to attach the umbilical cord to. It goes from mom to woman to woman. Or... They become fantasy-oriented, and they, they kind of have a, hot, a hidden private life through sexual fantasies, but they become passive in relation to women. And we see this in Jacob the rest of his life. He goes, he finds a woman he falls in love with, but he ends up married to the wrong sister, but then he ends up getting married to the one he really loves. And then the sisters end up having a like Game of Thrones moment in his tent where they end up giving him to their handmaids. He ends up with four women in his life telling him what to do. There's one scene where the women barter while he's out in the field who gets to have uh, intimacy with him that night. And so he comes in from like the field and he goes to the tent and she's like, no, sorry, you got to go to that tent because we, uh, we already rolled for it and she won. And he's like, all right, well, I'll go to that tent. Now, some guys read that and like, lucky, you know? Some guys are like, okay, if I get fought over, well, that's okay. No, no, what it is is he's just, we never see him really stand up to the women in his life. Even when he decides, we got to get out of here. We got to get away from my father. What's crazy is he pulls the women in. He's like, let's have a little ladies council, just us ladies, you know? And he gets counsel of, hey, I think we need to get out of here. 
Now, I'm not saying that was the wrong move to talk to his wives about a big move, but what I'm getting at is what we see in him is incredible passivity. The other option, men become dominant in relation to women. They become conquerors, and they can become potentially violent, or they become that desperado anytime a woman moves in. You know, Tom, what are you thinking? He doesn't want to be vulnerable, and so he pushes away and runs away. He, can't, he feels like any type of exposure like that will leave him in a vulnerable place. And so the consequence of the mother wound, this is, I took this, by the way, from Robert Lewis, who's a great author on these things, is that men become passive or they become dominant. That's a result of the wound. And so if, if you resist those things, if you struggle with those things, that's a good way of knowing, hey, you know, I've got this wound in my life. Well, let's look at an example of Jesus and his mom. Let's scroll through some of these, because this is positive. We don't, when we think of, when we think of Jesus, when we think of, I think it's just the making the coffee or something in there. Oh, the fan. That's a good sound. Okay, I, I saw everyone go, what is that noise? Is a helicopter landing? So the example of Jesus, we, we know who Jesus is. We don't always think of Jesus as a son in relation to his mother. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Virgin Mary uh, marries his mother, all that. Christmas is coming. She plays a part, pretty significant. Well, he was a son to a mom, and we see four snapshots in the Gospels that are highly instructive about how to have a healthy relationship with mom. So the first example is he defined the relationship with his mother. And the verse, I won't read it, but it's Luke 2, 43 through 50. And the story there is uh, Jesus and his whole family, he's 12 years old. They go to Jerusalem, and they they are going to celebrate Passover. And then the whole family caravans out of Jerusalem together, and Jesus stays behind in the temple. And when Mary and Joseph discover this a few days later, they are just, uh, they are just sickened about this whole thing. And so they run back to Jerusalem, and they finally find Jesus, and he's in the temple. And Mary tries to lay on a mom guilt trip. Why would you do this to us? Oh, my. We have tried to be the best parents to you, and yet you leave us. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, Mom, I'm so sorry. Oh, come on, bring it in here. I'll never do that again. Jesus says, don't you know I'd be about my father's work? I'd be in his house. Now, he's 12, man. I mean, that's some, that's some serious defining of the relationship there. At 12 years of age, he knows what he's about. And he also knows what her role is. Now, he does submit and go with them back to Nazareth. Okay? But he defined that relationship. The second example of Jesus is he decided what he would and would not do. This is a great story. It's John 2. It's the, if you don't know the story, just read it. It's Jesus' first recorded miracle. There's a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus turns water into wine. And after that, his disciples stuck to him like glue. I wonder why. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty good miracle. But he decided, he decided what he wouldn't do. Mary turns to him. Mary's there. She's got an official role at the wedding. And she turns to Jesus and says, they run out of wine And he says, woman, what's it to you and me? That's the literal translation. What is this to me and you? Don't bring me into this. My time's not yet come. And she doesn't argue with him. She turns to the servants and she's like, just do whatever he tells you to do. And she backs away. And then he turns water into wine. And it's not... It's not because he's like, well, mom said, my time has not yet come, but all right, here's the water. Boom, Merlot. 
Cabernet, you know. It's, that's not probably how that went. He defined what he decided what he would and wouldn't do. The problem was brought to him, and then he made the determination of what he would and wouldn't do in relation to mom. Third example we see is that he determined the boundary line. He determined the boundary line in the relationship with mom. It's, uh, this is Matthew 12, 46 and 50. And this is an interesting story. Jesus is at work. He's doing his work. He's teaching. He's in a house. It's crowded. His mom and brothers show up. And they can't get to him. And so they like play post office to get word up to where he is to say your mom and brothers are here. They want to see you. They want you to come with them. And his response was, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Behold, it's, it's those who do the will of my father who sent me. That's my mother. That's my brothers. And that can feel like cold and icy, but it's not. This is the boundary line. He is establishing, here's the line. I'm at work, okay? You're coming into my place of work right now, and I have to work right now. Now, it, seem, it might seem kind of cold. It is not cold. It is a boundary line. Every man has to have a boundary line. Jesus had to have it with Mary. But just to prove the affection that he had for his mother, he demonstrated deep love. This is the moment on the cross, John 9, when Jesus is hanging there, and he looks down, and he's, he is carrying the sins, the weight of the world at that moment. And he looks at Mary, and he says, Mary, Mom, behold your son, pointing or noting to John the Apostle, and to John the Apostle, he says, behold your mother. He is making sure his mom, he's the eldest And even in that crushing moment, he's making sure that she is well taken care of and that she is honored. Now, that's a a great example. Those are four terrific examples of Jesus and his relationship with mom that can help instruct us of how it's to be done. Let me scroll through just a few um, real practical things, and then we'll turn over to discussion. How do we deal with the mother wound? Let's say that this is a very real problem. Maybe overly bonded. Maybe mom hurt. Maybe mom's still inserting herself. There might be a variety of things. How to deal with it. First of all, recognize mom's motives were, I put in parentheses, probably good. There are a couple moms out there that are, they have problems and their motives were bad. But most moms' motives are very good. Mom loves the child. She gave birth to the child or took the child in. Maybe you were either born of her or adopted by her. But she loves her kids. And the problem isn't the lack of love. It's that love ends up swamping and clouding all good judgment. Again, I put probably because there's some exceptions probably in there. Our number two, our whining, uh, quit whining and do something about it. If there's a problem with your mom, quit whining and do something about it. Maybe mom's passed away or mom's removed from your life. Then get a counselor and do something about it. But do something about it. If, the, if mom is haunting your dreams or over your shoulder or you find other people in your life, loved ones going, you got to let mom go. I've got, I've got some people in my this is I got some people in my life that are senior citizens who still are haunted by their mothers. And it amazes me how a woman long dead still can overshadow a son. So quit whining and do something about it. Be realistic about the wound caused by mom. Some guys have a hard time owning up. Mom wasn't perfect. This is is a pain I've left. I've been left over because of my mother. And so be realistic. Be honest about it. It does no good to deny it. It, Yes, she loved you. But to then say, because she loved me, I'm just going to overlook all the bad. 
Don't do that. Be realistic about what you ought to be realistic about. Commit to honoring God and not submitting to mom. The scriptures say, honor your father and mother. So if you honor your mother, you'll honor God. And if you honor God, you'll honor your mother. That doesn't mean you obey mom or submit to mom, especially as grown men. When you're a little boy, there's not a lot of room for argument with mom. But as grown men, there comes a point, if mom says, the holidays are coming. And for some of you guys, the holidays are a very tense moment. I solved the issue. I moved 700 miles away. I don't have a real problem showing up for holidays. Can't be done. It's actually now more like 1,000 miles now that I say that. So it is not a problem, okay? But some of you guys, you're like, oh, holidays come. We still go to mom's house. Done doing this 20 years. My wife hates it, but we go. You know what? This is the last year. Quit doing that. At some point, you've got to quit submitting to mom. It'll annoy her. It might make her cry. But maybe that's just the right thing to do to help mature the relationship. So honor God. Commit to honoring God of all things but not submitting to mom. If you're married, commit to your wife, not your mom. If you're not married, just know this, that when you do get married, the wife comes first, mom comes second. Has to, has to, has to. In fact, mom doesn't come second. Mom comes a distant something different. Okay, different category because you got to put wife number one. And if your wife says, you're more devoted to your mother than me, she's telling it how it is. Because men's perception on this equation is not usually very good. So listen to your wife. Number six, relate to mom as a man, not as a little boy. There's a funny thing. I've seen big, grown, strong, strapping men. When mom comes around, they all of a sudden are pulling a little pull toy and playing with action figures again. Like they all, it brings out their inner child in them. Relate to, be a man, play the man. Don't act like a little boy. Number seven, get the necessary support. That's kind of why we do this, is, is to have a place of honesty, of expression, to be able to say, hey, this is what's going on. But get the necessary support in your life. And then finally, remain committed, remain committed to having a healthy relationship with mom. Remain committed to having a healthy relationship with mom, if at all possible. And almost all the time it's possible. There are a few exceptions where mom has to be expunged from a man's life because the toxicity is so extreme. But that is so insanely rare. Don't, don't consider that an option without a therapist giving you that kind of advice and your pastor. Most of the time, a healthy relationship with mom can be achieved. All right, we've, we've entered into some really tender topic here. And so as you move into discussion time... Just uh, know and be honest about all that, that that can, for some of you, you go, I, this is good to know for other people, but uh, in my life, this hasn't been a problem. But as you hear one another, don't try to solve anything, just be honest with one another. All right, so turn over to discussion, and then in about 10 minutes, I'll close this up in prayer. Thanks, guys.